Uh, well, let's get started. Um, so this is uh, Michael Brown, uh, Dr. Michael Brown, sorry. And um, uh, so I have a little bio on him I'm going to read, just so you guys can get a little bit more familiar with uh, him and some of his work. So uh, Dr. Michael Brown is the president of FIRE School of Ministry and the director of the Coalition of Conscience and the host of the daily nationally syndicated uh, radio show, The Line of Fire, as well as the host of the Apologetics TV show, Answering Your Toughest Questions, which airs on NRB TV Network. Dr. Brown has preached throughout the United States and in more than 20 nations and has written 20 books on revival, holiness, radical discipleship, and Jewish-Christian issues, along with scholarly works in Old Testament and Hebrew studies. And uh, so that's the bio we had for you, uh, Dr. Michael Brown. Do you have anything you kind of want to add about who you are or maybe some uh, passions and interests you have in ministry? Sure thing, and uh, thanks for the intro. We must have sent you a, an old bio because it's, it's over 30 books in over 30 nations. But, oh, wow. You know, life doesn't stand still. Um, yeah, uh, married to my wife, Nancy. We'll be married 42 years uh, this month, and two kids and four grandkids ranging in age from 11 to 17. And God saved me in 1971 in the midst of the Jesus People Movement, which came on the heels of the counterculture revolution. You know, there's a, an old saying, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. And so... Uh, God saved me in 1971 as a heroin-shooting, LSD-using, hippie rock drummer, 16 years old, got radically born again. And then as a Jewish believer, my dad said, okay, great, glad your life has changed, but we're Jews, we don't believe this. So that got me connected with the local rabbi, and he challenged me over the years, you don't even know Hebrew, and that's what got me to major in Hebrew in college, and then get my doctorate in Semitic languages, and then that got me into Old Testament scholarship and the whole world of apologetics. But... In terms of the topic at hand, I, I had always been burdened since my earliest days in the Lord to see Jesus touch people in a, in a wonderful and dramatic way, and I was burdened to see America touched with the gospel. But in terms of preaching holiness, in terms of preaching against sin, obviously as a heterosexual myself, that was, that was my focus. I don't come out of homosexuality. I never had a particular burden to focus on gay and lesbian issues over the years. And obviously my academic training is not connected with that, not connected with psychology or counseling or sexual brokenness or anything like that. So over the years, things having to do with gay activism were just not on my radar in a major way. In fact, if, if you look at my first 19 books up through around 2011, if you look at those and, and then go through every page Maybe if you if you took out quotes that touched on LGBT issues, maybe it would fill a page or two out of 19 books. So in other words, it was just not a major focus of life and ministry. When we relocated from New York originally, lived in Maryland, then in, in Pensacola, Florida, when we relocated from Florida to North Carolina in 2003, that's when the burden began to uh, get on my heart in terms of the need to address these things, there was a gay pride event in our city in 2004 uh, near, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I remember thinking I was overseas when it took place, but some of my, my closest friends were there trying to hand out gospel literature in the, the midst of the park. And the police actually told them they had to get out of the park. It was, it was quite remarkable. 
And I got really burdened. I thought, you know, here, Charlotte, North Carolina, and even though the city is for the liberal conservative state, and how can this be happening? And, and then we saw uh, gay activist organizations coming into our city and getting backed by the, the, the giant banks we have here, Bank of America then, and, and Citibank and different things. And just the, uh, we saw the schools pushing this way. So I began to get burdened because of the issues, first and foremost, because of the changes that were being pushed uh, to normalize homosexuality and beyond. And then because I, I want to do things in a righteous way, in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, as I began to study the issues, I wanted to understand the people better. Uh, my generation, I turned 63 this month, when we hear the word homosexuality, we think an issue. When the younger generation hears the word homosexuality, they think a person. And it's both issues and people. So as I began to meet with local gay activists to hear their story and to say, okay, I'm a believer in Jesus, we have differences here, how can we be neighbors in the same city? As I began to read more of their literature and look for opportunities to, to meet with folks that would tell me the story, those raised in the faith, those, claimed, those who claimed to be, quote, gay Christians, I got their books, I, I got books by gay theologians. And the more I read, the more my heart broke for the people. And again, we're dealing with both people and issues. And in early 2005, the Lord laid this simple word on my heart, reach out and resist. Reach out to the people with compassion. Resist the agenda with courage. Reach out and resist. To repeat, reach out to the people with compassion. Resist the agenda with courage. Put another way, we need hearts of compassion with backbones of steel. And it's essential that in this critical issue, which has become the principal threat to freedom of religion, speech, and conscience in America— it's critical as God's people, as salt and light, that we stand up in our society and make a difference. After all, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said the ultimate test of a moral society is the kind of world that it leaves to its children. And Martin Luther King said that the church must be reminded it's not the master of the state or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. And to me, that's what it means to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. If we don't stand, if we don't shine, if we don't declare God's purpose for marriage and family and sexuality, how is the world going to know it? That's on the one hand. On the other hand, we're talking about people for whom Jesus died, shed the same blood for gay and straight alike. Many of these folks have been raised in the faith, have felt hurt by the church. Often we've not dealt with people with compassion or understanding as if they just decided one day, well, I think I'm just going to be gay. It'll be fun to be gay. We haven't recognized the struggles they've gone through or someone struggling with their own gender identity and thinking they're going to be depressed the rest of their lives, suicidal, unless they start dressing as the opposite sex. It doesn't justify the behavior, but it reminds us of the need to be compassionate and caring while we take a strong stand. Many churches avoid the subject like the plague. Why? Well, once you start to address the issues, you will be vilified. You will be hated. You will be called Nazis and bigots and homophobes. Uh, every, every kind of attack will come your way on social media and beyond. You'll be stigmatized. You'll be known as the church that, that's full of hate. A lot of pastors think, why bother with this? Let's just quietly go about our business. Uh, also, many times, your average pastor 
is overwhelmed, busy enough. Now here's another issue to tackle. It's like, hey, I've got enough to deal with within my flock. The problem is there are folks within that flock who are struggling, maybe a, a kid that's same-sex attracted, maybe parents whose kid has just come out as gay, maybe folks working in the business world or the school system where these things are being addressed. Uh, maybe they're now under pressure because of Supreme Court ruling on marriage that now they have to accommodate same-sex, quote, marriage. I get asked constantly, uh, my, my relatives getting married to a same-sex partner, should I go to the wedding? These are issues we can't avoid. The problem is, again, getting properly equipped, knowing how to speak the truth in love. So what I want to do just with that as an introduction is respond to all the questions that you have, whether they're biblical, theological in nature, whether they're practical or personal, uh, we'll respond to as many as we can in the time that we have allotted. So go ahead with your, your questions, and then I'll tell you at the end how you can connect with me online and take advantage of literally thousands of free resources that we have for you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that intro. You did a much better job than I did. Um, and uh, I, just a small plug, um, I'm, a, I'm personally like a really, really big fan of this guy, so this is a huge honor for me to be able to Skype with you, let alone uh, kind of moderate this. But one thing I love about Dr. Michael Brown is in all of his resources when he's dealing with these social issues, the idea of speaking the truth with love is, is so prevalent in what he does. And I think that's so key when you're dealing with any of this stuff is how are you still loving the individual? And so um, uh, I'm, I'm just really excited for this, so let's get into the questions. This first one um, is really long, so bear with me. Um, it says, uh, the, the topic of the question is about finding identity within Christ and God. How would you reply to a non-believer who says they can find or who says they can find identity because they know what they like, what drives them, uh, they find meaning without, within their own experiences, therefore they don't need a God to tell them who they are. Okay, so this is obviously a, a, a larger issue, but uh, we could ask them a few basic questions. Do you fully know your identity if you don't know where you came from? Let's say that you thought that you were the child of a king and queen, and you were actually the, the child of, of a, a serial rapist uh, who raped a woman and kept her in captivity, and then you know, later you were subsequently adopted. Would that affect your, your view of, of who you actually were? Or what if, in fact, you are just the product of random uh, evolutionary processes? that very simply you uh, uh, have no destiny, you have no specific purpose, you're just the product of freak revolu uh, evolutionary purposes, you're just material matter, that's, that's it. Uh, your brain is just neurons firing. Would that affect your understanding of who you were? If you were just a you know, more evolved form of, a, of an amoeba, and then if you had no specific purpose or destiny, if at the end of your life that's all there is, would that affect who you are? I mean, obviously so. So uh, our worldview, our understanding of who we are is going to be radically different if we believe a God created us and brought us into this world for a purpose, and that what we do in this world is going to affect things forever, and that this world is just a, a, a vestibule for the world to come, as Jewish literature says. So by all means— 
uh, understanding who your creator is and understanding why he brought you into this earth, that makes a night and day difference in everything that we do. Awesome. All right, the next question um, is homosexuality genetic? Are people born gay? There is no reputable scientific evidence that anyone is, quote, born gay or that there is a specific genetic cause for homosexuality. Uh, one way that you can verify this for yourself is to go to the very liberal websites of the American Psychiatric Association and the American Psychological Association. They are as pro-gay as you come. When they've had task force investigating LGBT issues, they're almost always all gay or gay activist ally, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists on the panels. Uh, it is inc it, even, even liberals have talked about the degree to which these organizations have shifted to be militantly pro-LGBT. And yet, on their websites, they say we don't know for sure the causes of homosexuality. It may be partly nature. It may be partly nurture. It may be partly biology. It may be partly environment. We actually don't know for sure. So when they say it, you can know that there's a reason. Any way they say it's genetic, they would. Now, we do know that there are genetic factors that could make one more susceptible to same-sex behavior. In other words, just like there are certain genetic factors that may make one person more susceptible to being violent and another person more susceptible to being very sensitive, uh, though, those are things that are correlation, not causation. Those are things that speak of being predisposed, not predestined. So it's possible, again, that there are some factors that make one person more susceptible to same-sex attraction than someone else. But there is nothing reputable that there is uh, a predestination that someone is born this way and that it's just like skin color or ethnicity and it is what it is and it can't be changed. Not only so. But if you want to say that's the case, then you have to say it with things like violence and obesity because people say, well, they've discovered a violent gene or an obesity gene. Now, there are even some scientists a few years ago said that they've discovered an adultery gene. So men, try that one out. You know, commit adultery and tell your wife, oh, look, I just have an adultery gene. So, so no one accepts that notion in terms of predetermined behavior. And from a theological viewpoint, we have no problem with someone being born gay because we're born in sin and we need to be born again. But purely from a reputable scientific viewpoint, no, there is no definitive evidence that anyone is born gay or that homosexuality is genetic. Awesome. I love, I love that you bring it back to the issue of we're all born sinful, you know, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I love that. All right, the next question, um, it says, does it say specifically that there's anything wrong with being LGBT in the Bible? What, what Scripture speaks of explicitly is actions and behaviors and deeds. In other words, the scriptural issue is not a matter of what is someone struggling with. The issue is, what are you acting on? So the Bible explicitly forbids homosexual behavior. It forbids a man being with a man or a woman being with a woman. 
it does say that this is contrary to nature, so contrary to the way that God designed us. Uh, it also establishes that marriage is the union of one man and one woman for life. So this is also God's ideal laid out in Scripture, which is then reinforced by Jesus himself in the New Testament. So marriage is defined as one man, one woman for life. There is not a single positive reference to a homosexual relationship anywhere in the Bible. All references to homosexual practice are decidedly and exclusively negative. And we also know in the Genesis account, Genesis 1 and 2, that God made the human race male and female, and then he made Eve as the suitable helper for Adam, because only together could they be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So he designed us for heterosexuality. All references to homosexual practice in the Bible are decidedly negative. And we are told specifically that it is sinful and detestable in his sight to engage in homosexual actions. So clearly laid out at the same time, when Paul gives a list of sins in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, he lists numerous sins, adultery, fornication, homosexual practice, and says those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says in verse 11, and that's what some of you were. So there is mercy and redemption for all the same way. And if someone who's been practicing homosexuality for many years come to, comes to faith, it doesn't mean that automatically their attractions and desires will change. It does mean that their relationship with God will become real and that their behavior will change. But just like a, a single guy in his 20s or a married man in his 40s may have to watch his thought life, even though one is married, one is single, and, and God's ordained heterosexual relations, uh, anything outside of marriage is still sinful. So the single guy, he has to watch his thoughts and, and his actions. The married guy has to watch his thoughts and his actions. So someone that gets saved and is same-sex attracted, they may still be same-sex attracted. They have to watch their thoughts and their actions. But by God's grace, even those attractions can potentially change over time or instantly. Awesome. I'm going to tag on to this with a, a question of my own that I, is, I hear a lot. Um, I work with college students a lot, and so I hear this kind of uh, response quite a bit. And this is something that a lot of um, these uh, very liberal theologians, some of them even are um, uh, LGBT themselves, will come in and say, um, well, the, what does the Bible say about uh, committed same-sex uh, relationships, you know, because a, a lot of the times it'll, you know, it'll come back to this idea of, well, when the Bible's talking about it in a negative light, it's these non-committed, you know, non, you know, um, kind of like binary couples. But what does the Bible say about committed homosexual relations? Right. So let's break it down on a few levels. Number one, if the act itself is called detestable and contrary to nature, then doing it over and over with the same person doesn't make it holy, all right? So if something is sinful and wrong in God's sight by its very nature, doing it repeatedly with someone that you love doesn't redeem it or make it good. That's number one. Number two, we see that the pattern for marriage and family is exclusively heterosexual. If we're asking, what does God say? Well, he says, children, honor your father and mother. In a gay family, who's the father, who's the mother? You say, yeah, but there are some single-parent families. Exactly, something is missing. We recognize that there's a deficit there, something is missing, but we don't change the fundamental order. 
when Paul writes to the Ephesians and says, husbands, love your wives, wives, submit to your husbands, who's the husband and who's the wife in a same-sex relationship? It doesn't fit the design. Uh, let's take this even further. Uh, let's think about now uh, Jesus' ministry on the earth. It tells us in John 2, 24 and 25, that he didn't need any person to tell him about other people because he knew what was in the heart of men. He knew all men. That means that as Jesus met people who were same-sex attracted, he knew what was in their hearts. He knew what was going on, and yet he never said anything to reinforce anything positive to them. Rather, through the Gospels, he reinforced the moral standards of the Torah. Through the Gospels, he said that all sin committed outside of marriage, uh, all sexual acts committed outside of marriage are sinful. And he reiterated that marriage is the union of one man and one woman for life. So Jesus himself, who knew what was in the hearts of human beings, uh, did not say, hey, I understand you're struggling with same-sex attraction. No, he preached the same standards that God had always laid out. Also, it's interesting that you can make a good case that, say, Paul, living in the Greco-Roman world, was familiar with all kinds of sexual relationships, just like we are today. In other words, he was familiar with heterosexual promiscuity. He was familiar with homosexual promiscuity. He was familiar with long-term heterosexual relationships. He was familiar with short-term heterosexual relationships, long-term homosexual relationships. He was familiar with all those different things because they were common in his world. And you have someone like Nero you know, getting, quote, married to his partner. You have ancient Jewish literature that may have been extant in Jesus' day that talks about one reason God destroyed the earth with the flood is that men were entering into marriage contracts with other men. So it could well be that the biblical authors actually were exposed to long-term same-sex relationships and even, quote, same-sex marriages, and yet they categorically spoke against them. So uh, that is an argument from silence that fails on every point and should never be used again by gay activists. It's just a council of despair. Thank you. I, yeah, I really like that. Um, I'd, I'd never thought about it that way, thinking of Paul, you know, being in Rome, and we all know that the Roman culture isn't uh, too much different than ours today in terms of uh, depravity and stuff like that, that he was probably very familiar with exactly what that stuff is. So I, I like that. Um, the next question we have is about uh, Jewish topics, so it's getting a little bit away from the other um, LGBT issues. But it says, uh, should we follow the Jewish Sabbath? Yeah, this is one of the three most common questions I get asked. Uh, the other two are have to do with divorce and tithing. Uh, there's a top ten of questions that come up constantly. So let me, let me use this for a moment to say this. If you go to my website, askdrbrown.org, A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org, askdrbrown.org. If you'll go there, uh, you will uh, first thing sign up for my emails. So before you leave the site, sign up for my email list. We'll send you a free ebook on how to pray for America that you'll find helpful and edifying. But then uh, every week we produce normally between five and seven new videos. My daily radio show we put up on video and then additional videos. And then I write normally four or, four or five new articles a week. So every week you'll be notified of latest articles and videos in case you miss anything. But uh, you can also just search 
in our digital library. We have thousands of items there and they're free. So just search for the word Sabbath and you'll have whole radio broadcasts on this, short teachings on it. Uh, search for any other issues that you're interested in, doctrinal issues, social issues, and you'll find a wealth of articles or videos or uh, radio shows or sermons that are relevant. Uh, in short, God, even though God established the Sabbath of creation, it's only spoken in Exodus 16 that he specifically gave it as a sign to Israel. It was something new when he gave it to them. This was a covenant sign with Israel, and nowhere in the New Testament is there a specific command for the church as a whole to keep the seventh-day Sabbath. Not only so, Colossians 2 warns the believers not to let anyone put them under pressure regarding observance of Sabbath or new moon or holy day or anything like that. Uh, in addition to that is the fact that uh, nowhere does the New Testament command us to uh, set aside Sunday as the Sabbath or to make Sunday the new Sabbath. This is something that uh, developed over a period of centuries, and it's really the, the Catholic Church in, in the fourth century that, that begins to, to speak of this, the Sunday as the Sabbath. So this is something that every believer has to work through for himself or herself, because there is not a direct New Testament command for Gentile believers to keep the Sabbath, nor is there a specific command to make Sunday the Sabbath. So I encourage you to work this out between you and the Lord. But no, there is not a specific command that all believers must keep the Seventh-day Sabbath. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to pause really quickly. So as he's been talking, if you've been thinking of questions and I'm like, wow, man, I should have put that in, we're going to do another round of passing out cards if anyone has some questions they've thought of uh, since we started. So um, Pastor Greg is going to help us out with that, and I'm going to continue reading through the ones we have here. So this one, um, this is another really common one I hear on campus a lot. It says, how can loving somebody be wrong, even if it's somebody of the same sex? So the, the question is, are you going to be consistent on that? In other words, is love the one and only thing that makes a relationship right or wrong? If that's the question, do you have any problem with two adult brothers loving each other and being in a relationship? Or an adult father and daughter being in a consensual relationship? If love wins and, and love is love and you have the right to be with the one you love, then why is incest wrong? You say, well, there are health risks if you have, a, 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 say, a brother having sex with a sister. You know, they're in their 20s and they have a baby. There could be genetic issues. Well, there are health risks with two men having sex far more than with a man and a woman having sex. Is that now the guideline, health risks? What if it's two adult brothers that can't have a baby uh, between them? Then is, is that wrong? You say, well, you're, you're comparing apples with oranges. No, no, I'm simply following through on love is love. Uh, what if you're, you're married to your wife and you, you no longer love her, but you love another woman? Is it okay then? And you don't have any kids. You say, well, you're hurting someone with it. Well, but, but I love this other person. So in no way do we have this universal idea that as long as the relationship is loving, then... Uh, it's fine and it's good and it's blessed by God. Uh, not only so, but those who do say that anything goes, uh, you know, that incest is fine. And, and I've been on college campuses 
and they've challenged me on these things. And I've said, okay, what about two brothers? What about three women? What about this? And ultimately, they end up saying, okay, anything goes. Any relationship is fine. If that's the direction you want to go, then I'll just tell you that it's ultimately not loving. It's more about what I desire than real love because real love is not just concerned about individuals. It's concerned about others. And unless we have solid families and moms and dads raising kids and things like that, society ultimately breaks down. So it is selfish more than it is loving. But I always ask people if love is love, is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? I remember sitting with a a gay couple in Charlotte one time uh, talking about these very issues and they were talking about their relationship doesn't hurt anybody and it's fine. I said, well, what about two brothers? They said, that's icky. That's wrong. I said, well, what you do to me is icky and wrong. You know, is, is that the guideline now? What I think is icky and wrong, what you think is icky and wrong. And ultimately, they had no, no reason why their relationship was okay, but two adult brothers wasn't okay. Of course, there is no reason other than the fact that they're all wrong in God's sight. That's the next question. Um, how can being gay, lesbian, gender fluid be wrong if that's the way I was born? Okay, number one, there's no evidence you were born that way. But what if I use that with any number of other issues? Let's say, for example, obesity. Uh, we all recognize that obesity is unhealthy. And many of us struggle with it for years. But we recognize in and of itself it is unhealthy. So here's a big question. What if I was born with an obesity gene? Do I go to fat pride parades? Do I start a fat pride in my school? Or do I exercise even more and, and work on my diet even more to work against this? Even if someone had a tendency from birth to be a certain thing, what if someone has a, quote, violent gene and beats up a gay person? Does that make it okay? Of course not. So number one, there's no evidence that someone was born gay. It may be very deep-seated. It may be from their earliest memories of sexuality and romantic attraction. They felt attracted to the same sex. It may be something they've tried to change and found they're unable to. We don't argue about it being deep-seated in many, many people, all right? But no evidence you were born that way. And even if you were, does that make the behavior right? No, it just means we need more help that we're in a fallen, messed up world. Awesome. Um, this next question is really cool. It uh, takes the LGBT issue and kind of brings it into an evangelistic light. It says, I come into contact with a lot of LGBT individuals. What's a quick way I can bring up Jesus? Well, don't put LGBT individuals in a special class. Don't, don't put them in a class any different than any other human being. And, and in fact, as far as sharing the gospel, that's really the last issue to think about. Uh, they're fellow human beings created in the image of God and yet fallen like the rest of us, uh, people for whom Jesus died, and people that we want to see come into a healthy relationship with God. So like anyone else, just bring up the Lord where appropriate. Uh, talk about Jesus where it's appropriate to talk about him and, and bring him in. And again, I think we we do people a disservice when we make this a special category. If I was talking to somebody that was uh, a guy sleeping with his girlfriend, that would not be the major focus of my discussion. Or if I was speaking to someone who was a heavy drinker or or someone who was a church-going hypocrite 
or someone that was a greedy businessman that was ripping off other companies. I'm just going to try to get to know that person to find an open door to preach the gospel. In the midst of it, I may talk to that person about sin uh, very quickly if it, if it comes up. But I, if I'm talking to uh, someone that drinks heavily, their bigger issue may be that, that they hate God. Their bigger issue may be that they're angry. Their bigger issue may be something else. So my first topic is not going to be, oh, I can see you're gay, or I can see, sir, that you're a man who thinks he's a woman. I'm going to start there. I'm going to start, here's a fellow human being that needs the Lord. Now in our conversation, things may come up, and I want to be equipped and ready. My book, Can You Be Gay and Christian?, folks will find really helpful on that score. Can you be gay and Christian? We'll equip them. And then I have videos where I've taught on these things, you know, for an hour or two online as well. So you get equipped and knowledgeable as to how to handle their objections, be they social objections, be they uh, biblical objections. But you just treat them like a fellow human being. And if, and if someone, let's say your best friend comes, sits you down one day, you know, they're, they're in church, they're in the Lord, and they say, I, I got to talk to you. I, it's something really heavy. I got to talk to you. You say, okay, what's going on? They say, I, look, I'm gay. It's like, I thought you had something heavy to talk to me about. Just downplay. It's like, we're friends. We're going to still be friends. So no, don't say you're gay. Don't find that as your identity. All right? Let, let's not start there. Uh, I'm a gay Christian. No, no, no. That's not your identity. Your identity is you're a child of God. Your identity is not your romantic attractions and sexual desires. So let's start there. You love the Lord. You want to serve him. You're okay. We'll work this through. You're my friend. All right, so you're struggling with same-sex attraction. This doesn't define you. So the same way when I'm witnessing to someone, I'm not letting that define them for me either. Thank you, and I think, I think that's a good, um, when it comes to evangelism, that's a good advice in general is bring it back yeah. to the gospel and bring it back to Jesus because that's, that's the core issue that we all have. Um, so we're here in Albuquerque. I don't know if you knew that, Michael, uh, Dr. Michael Brown, um, but Albuquerque is known as the late-term abortion capital of the country. And so uh, this question is on that. It says, do you have any thoughts on resisting Albuquerque being the late-term abortion capital of the country? Yeah, that is 100% the responsibility of the local church. And, and uh, Francis Schaeffer, to paraphrase, many years ago said that that every abortion clinic in America needs to have a sign on it saying open by permission of the local church. In Charlotte, North Carolina, there is a large Planned Parenthood abortion clinic. And I, I think it may be one of the largest in the, in the Southeast. And there are friends of mine who have been actively working pro-life for, well, probably 13, 14, 15 years now. And students in our ministry school will often join them. Folks in our church will often join them. But a few years ago, a local businessman got really burdened about this and thought, I've got to do something, started reaching out to other churches, uh, other evangelical churches, started working together with other leaders, calling business community together. And in the last two years, uh, we have seen more than 800 babies saved. In other words, people were going to have their abortions and ended up not having them. Some have gone on to have their kids themselves and are raising them and are thrilled to be doing so. Some gave their kids up for adoption. Uh, a number of the people have come to faith. Abortion workers have quit their jobs. And our goal is to see this one place completely shut down. And, and we, believe, we believe it's going to happen. So uh, all you need is 10% of the born-again churches in Albuquerque 
to have a serious burden about this, and you could shut down every abortion clinic in your city in a matter of a year. Uh, these things are horrific, especially late-term abortion is terribly unpopular through much of America. Very, very few doctors will perform it. You're not going to find major hospitals that will perform such a, 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 an extremely brutal, horrific act, even beyond the normal brutality of abortion. So this is a matter of getting every church in the city that knows the Lord to pray and then to put together teams that are involved uh, if, if you go to citiesforlife.org, citiesnumber4life.org, you can see what some of my local friends have done uh, in Charlotte, and it's a, it's a template that can be multiplied in, in every city in America where you treat this holistically. You speak out against the evil of abortion and have folks in front of the abortion mills on a regular basis, on a daily basis, or at least on a weekly basis that you have the churches praying, that you also have, uh, you work with pregnancy crisis centers. If you don't have them, you pray for them to be raised up in your community. You get other referral services so that women, mothers, and the fathers can be dealt with in a holistic way. And this is, this is the blood's on our hands. There's nobody responsible for this more than us as God's people who know better. So those involved with this, they're, they're guilty before God but there's the blood guilt on us for saying and doing so little. So all it takes is the church rising up in the city, and, and, and I'm sure you've got some strong pro-life organizations already and some that are, that are working and doing a good job. Find out who they are, work together. If there's something that's really doing the right thing, then, then pray that God will raise someone up or you go ahead and do what you do uh, until this is eradicated. There's no question, especially with this extreme practice, that the extreme practice can be eradicated almost overnight. And we're not talking about through violence or hatred or anger or, God forbid, attacking a doctor. We are talking about through being a faithful witness and offering alternatives of mercy that this can be eradicated from your city. Awesome. Thank you so much. So, um, man, this next question um, I, I think this is a really relevant one today as well because there's a lot of discussion going on about this. Uh, it says, there's a rare condition uh, in which a person is born with both male and female sex organs. What should that person do then? And is there a biblical basis for what to do? Yeah, so we know that at creation, God makes us male and female. And throughout scripture, only refers to males and females. We also know that we're a fallen race and that people are born with all types of disabilities and handicaps, that there's some people that are born blind and some people that are born deaf, etc. We don't change the natural order because of that. In other words, we, we don't stop people from seeing and hearing and saying that that's the norm. Rather, with compassion, we try to help those that don't fit into the norm. Uh, Braille has been developed for, for blind people to read. Uh, we have, you know, on elevators, you'll have Braille. You'll have different things to, to accommodate the deaf, sign languages and meetings and, and transcripts and things like that. So you do your best to accommodate someone with a particular disability without turning the order of things upside down. Uh, it would almost be like saying because you have someone that's blind in a school that all the kids have to close their eyes when they walk through the hallway. No, you just, you get someone to help that kid around uh, and accommodate them as best as possible. So as far as society as a whole, and I know this wasn't the question, 
But as far as society as a whole, the fact that there are people called intersex, this would be biological or chromosomal abnormality. It could be ambiguous genitalia. It could be dual genitalia. It could be a chromosomal issue where the person grows up male and then when they hit puberty, they seem to become female in their development. These are abnormalities. These people need to be treated with compassion and kindness like we would anyone else struggling with a serious disability. At the same time, we don't now turn gender definitions upside down and get rid of male and female. All right, having said that, what does that person do? Well, ultimately, they are either male or female or predominantly male or predominantly female. And what doctors and scientists have learned now is if you have a, a child with ambiguous or dual genitalia, the old method was to do surgery quickly, so, and it was easier to make the child into a girl and just raise the child as a girl thinking that that would then work out. And it turned out, well, for many, it didn't work out because the kid was actually a boy. So what you do is you let the child grow. As the child begins to grow and develop, you see who this child really is as well. So, okay, uh, this really is a little boy. This really is a little girl. You look at chromosomal evidence, you know, test whatever you can test to see. And then based on that, try to adjust whatever you can surgically or with hormones so that there's now harmony between body and soul. That's very different than someone who identifies as transgender, but who is a biological and chromosomal male who is convinced he's a female. That person has, has an internal issue, spiritual, emotional, something else that needs to be addressed. The, the person who is intersex has a biological or chromosomal abnormality. There are two totally different categories. Okay, so I think this is going to be our last question. Um, and All right. then I'm going to give you some time at the end to uh, plug any resources or, or new, um, uh, new stuff you have coming out. But this last question um, it says, there's taught in some churches that if someone claims they are a Christian and come out as gay, that they should not be associated with in any way. Um, and the idea is that this will cause them to re repent. How should we respond right, to this reproach? Yeah, all right. Same as any other situation. Don't put it in a special category, all right? Number one, we have to understand when the person says, I'm gay, are they just admitting that they're same-sex attracted using the language of today's culture? Or are they saying, I am now in a homosexual relationship? If it's the former, you encourage that person to not make that their identity and say, let's work with you. Let's try to get to the root of these same-sex attractions and let's give them over to the Lord and let's see how you can grow in holiness and perhaps even find resolution to these unwanted same-sex attractions. If the person says, no, 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 I'm embracing this. This is who I am. I'm now pursuing a relationship or, you know, I'm a, I'm a gal and I'm, I'm now in relationship an active relationship with another woman. Now you treat that person the same as you treat someone that was committing adultery or the same as a guy sleeping with his girlfriend claiming to be a follower of Jesus. You lovingly reach out to them with meekness. You call them to repentance. If they refuse your call and the call of witnesses and leaders, and they're still claiming to be followers of Jesus and part of your congregation, 
then you have to excommunicate them. If they've left the church and separated themselves, they've already done the separating, you're praying for them like a lost person. But if they say, no, we're members here and no one's going to get us out of this place, and, and we tell everyone in our workplace we're members of you know, First Assembly or First Pres or First Baptist, whatever, that's when, if they refuse to repent, you have to excommunicate them just like you would any other persistent, unrepentant, open, willful sin of someone that claims to be a member of, of your church. Uh, so that's how you have to handle it. But again, don't put it in a special category as if it's unique, same as any other sinful practice. But restoration is always the goal. Don't be hasty in, in pushing someone away if they're, if they're open or looking for help. And remember to make a distinction between someone saying, quote, I'm gay, by which they, maybe they're struggling, they feel they have to say it. Okay, that's not who you are, friend. All right, that's your son or daughter. That's not who you are. I understand that's the language you're using. And I understand these attractions and desires are very deep in you, and you may even feel like you were born this way. But in God's sight, that's not who you are. Don't make that your primary identity. And, and that also means that if you're living a holy, godly life, celibate, uh, but you say, hey, I'm gay, don't, don't identify like that. Don't identify as a gay Christian. That's putting the emphasis in the wrong place, and it's putting a, a, an adjective in front of your name that is unnecessary. All right, listen, uh, on my website, you'll see that you can connect with us on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube, Instagram as well, but we don't use that as much. We're super active on Facebook. We've got almost 560,000 followers there, and day and night, we're posting links to articles. We do a live feed of our radio show which is uh, your time, uh, one to two daily. That's on Facebook, on YouTube. So connect with us there. If you're on Twitter, we're sending things out regularly there. This way you can know as soon as stuff's going on, latest quotes, latest articles, latest videos. And, and it's a great place to interact because it's big enough uh, that, that a lot of people don't agree and, and you can have some really helpful uh, discussions as well. And then my last book uh, came out in September, Saving a Sick America. Uh, that deals with all the major issues in our nation and how Scripture alone has the cure and how revival is our ultimate hope. And then I have a book uh, coming out in April called Playing with Holy Fire. It's coming out a month from today, uh, dealing with abuses in the charismatic Pentecostal church. Uh, so that, that you'll find helpful what the Spirit is doing, but uh, abuses that are dangerous. So depending on your background, that could be of interest to you as well. But uh, everything is, is mentioned on the website AskDrBrown.org, including our trip to Israel next year. So connect with us. Let us be an ongoing blessing to you. And thanks for your interest and attention today. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And uh, there were a couple questions we didn't get to. And I would just encourage you, if I didn't read your question or if you have more questions, go and use these resources. They're so great. And it's, it's just going to be so helpful when you're um, doing evangelism, when you're sharing your faith or when you're just dealing with friends and these issues come up. So thank you, uh, Dr. Brown, and uh, yeah, just thank God you so much. You. My joy.